Thank you all for your good singing this morning. Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. As we look at the next section in this letter. Let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer before we begin today. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful and comforting truths that we sang about just now. Thank you, Lord, that these things are true. They are not just nice-sounding things we make up to make ourselves feel better, but they are true. And we thank you that they are from your word. Thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for inspiring it and preserving it for us even today, that we too might have hope and encouragement from the scriptures. Lord, I pray that we would give our most earnest attention now to your word. Thank you for the access that we have to it, the freedom and the opportunity that we have here to worship and to hear your word today. Help us not to take that for granted, but may we give it earnest attention. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would soften our hearts this morning to hear your word, whether we need it for rebuke or for comfort, edify us and strengthen us in our faith for the glory of your name. We thank you that you are a God of light. And that though we were once in the darkness, you have called us out of that darkness and transformed us from darkness into light. So help us to live that way. Strengthen us to live as children of light. Lord, help me as I proclaim your word now. Strengthen me in every way. Help me to remember what I've studied. Help me to focus on what is going on. Lord, humble me and use me in spite of me to build up this church and to glorify your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're in Ephesians chapter 5 with me, we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 14 today. But imagine if you were um, standing at the bus stop one day, you were waiting for your bus to come, and I know some of you don't ride the bus, but uh, imagine that you do. If you're waiting for the, the normal town bus to come by, and while you're waiting, a different bus pulls up. It's really nice looking, it's got you know the newest state-of-the-art equipment on it, and you're thinking, this is not my normal bus, what is this going on here? And it pulls up, and the bus driver opens the door and uh, says, hey, come on, hop on. And you're like, well, who are you? Well, I, I drive this bus. It's different. We're on a different route. And you look on there, and you see friends, family, people you know on that bus. You say, well, where's this bus going? 
and the driver says, well, we're going to drive until we get to a cliff, and we're going to drive off and crash into the ocean. And you think, I don't want to get on that bus. And your friends, your family, they're over there like, yeah, come on, come on. And you're thinking, why are you on this bus? Don't you know where it's headed? And maybe some of them do, maybe some of them don't, but what would you do in that situation? Hopefully you would not get on that bus, right? Get them off. Yes, and that's the next thing. Don't, don't just stand there and refuse to get on, but try to get the people on there off the bus. Because why? They're heading to their death, right? Well, last week, from the first six verses in this chapter, Paul gave this very serious warning if you look in just chapter 5, verse 5, he says, For know and recognize this, every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. So Paul says these people who live this way they have not had their lives transformed by the grace of God. They are headed for the wrath of God. They are not headed for the kingdom. And so in our passage today, he's beginning a new section, but he's continuing his thought, and he's saying, don't get on that bus with them. Do not partner with these people in heading to that destination. In fact, you need to play your part in turning them the other way, turning them from darkness to light to get them off that bus that's headed to destruction. That's what Paul is going to tell us today in Ephesians 5, 7 through 14. Before we do that, let's review a little bit of what we've seen so far since chapter 4. In chapter 4, verse 1, Paul called us to walk worthy of the calling that we have received, our salvation. And he tells us to walk worthy, first off, by being united in the church. And then later in chapter 4, in verse 17, he says, he has this pattern when he begins a new section of saying, therefore, walk or live this way. And he says in 4, verse 17, Therefore, you should no longer live or walk as the Gentiles live. So don't live like unbelievers. He expands on that. And like we saw last week, he says in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love. So we walk worthy of our calling. We don't walk like unbelievers. We walk like in Christ-like love. And then today... Look at our passage in verse 7. He says, Therefore, do not become their partners. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live or walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Everything exposed by the light is made visible, for what makes everything visible is light. Therefore it is said, get up, sleeper, 
and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That's our passage for today, and the final passage that we will look at in a few weeks gives us one final way to walk. He says in verse 15, pay careful attention then, literally therefore, to how you live or walk, not as unwise people, but as wise. So we walk in love, unity, holiness, and here we see we walk in the light. We walk as children of light. And then finally, next time, we'll see that we walk or we live in wisdom. So for our passage today, let's summarize it with our big idea. Paul says, Paul says that my PowerPoint's not working for some reason. So I'll just give you the big idea. Don't partner with or participate in darkness, but live as children of light and expose darkness. So in this passage, he gives us two negative commands and two positive commands. Don't partner with or participate in darkness, but live as children of light and expose darkness. So what does that mean, though? It's kind of abstract, right? Darkness, light. What's he, what's he talking about with that? Thank you, Jim. Well, let's look at this first part. Don't partner with darkness, but live as children of light. That's how he begins in verse 7. He says, don't partner with unbelievers. He says, therefore, do not become their partners. Well, who's the there referring back to? It's the people of verses 5 and 6, these disobedient, unbelieving people who are headed for destruction, who are under the wrath of God. And obviously, when he says don't be their partners, he's telling us not to live in the same sinful way as these people. But this word actually has a stronger meaning than just don't live the same way. It's the same word that Paul used back in Ephesians 3.6 when he said the Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So he's saying you can be a partner in the gospel, the promise of salvation in God's kingdom through Christ, or you can be a partner in the path that is heading to hell. There is no middle road There is no both and. You are either a partner in the gospel or you are a partner with unbelievers in heading to the wrath of God. Don't be their partners. Don't join them on this path that will lead to death. And that should be reason enough for us to obey this, right? But he continues. He gives us further reason in verse 8. He says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So why should we not live this way? It's because of who we are as believers. He tells us that we used to be darkness. What is this darkness referring to? Well, it's our condition before Christ. It's who we were before we put our faith in Christ. And it's interesting, if you study this word, this idea of darkness in Paul's writings, every time he uses it, he always is referring to lost people or to their unsaved condition in some way. There's only one verse 
where he doesn't use it that way, and it's in the next chapter of Ephesians, and he uses it to refer to satanic power. So darkness refers to being outside of Christ. And if you just look over a page in your Bible at chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, we'll get some understanding on how this darkness affects unbelievers, how it affected us before we were saved. Ephesians 4, 17 and 18, Paul says, Therefore I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. So this darkness doesn't just mean that we were lost one time. It means that we were blind. We were spiritually blind. We were spiritually ignorant. We could not understand spiritual truths. We were separated from the life of God, and our hearts were hard. That's what Paul is referring to. But Christ came. Christ comes, and he makes a marvelous transformation. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. The complete opposite of darkness. In Christ, we have a new nature, a new identity. We are no longer darkness. We are light, and we are responsible to live that out. If darkness represents our spiritual ignorance, our hard heart, our sinful living, then what does being light in the Lord represent? Understanding the gospel and spiritual truth. Godly living. Having a soft heart toward the things of God. And he's going to describe in verse 9 what it looks like in more detail to live in the light. So what is he talking about when he says to live as children of light there in verse 8? The end of verse 8, he says, live as children of light. And then he explains in verses 9 and 10 what that looks like. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. So how do we, how do we live as children of light? If that's our new nature, if that's our new identity, what do we do to live that out? Well, first off, he says in verse 9 that a life as a child of light is characterized by these three things, goodness, righteousness, and truth. Now, I could go on and on about this because, as you'll see when I explain this, this is one of these things that I love studying. This word for goodness a lot of times when we think of goodness, we think of moral goodness, someone who follows the rules, all those sorts of things. Well, goodness has more meanings than that. Like when I say that was a good pizza, I don't mean that that pizza obeyed the law, right? I mean it tasted really good. That's more of the idea for this word for goodness. Actually, when I was studying it, I'd never run across this Greek word before. So I started studying it. And found out what he's talking about here is usually this word, almost always actually, it's used for qualitative goodness. Saying that something is pleasing, or it's excellent, or it's beautiful, or it's 
appropriate and fitting for a situation. Not necessarily referring to physical or visual beauty, but it can. It can refer to that. And think about how that relates to this imagery of light. Light is beautiful, right? On a dark night, you go out, you look up at the stars in the dark sky, and they're beautiful. Lately, we've been able to see the, the planet Venus from our front window in the mornings because it's still dark, and my kids will run out to the living room every morning, Daddy, lift up the blinds. We want to see Venus, that sort of thing. It's beautiful to look at. Or when the light, when the sun rises, you know, before the world is dark, you can't see things very well. You need light to see what is beautiful. This is what Paul is talking about. And unfortunately, we often overlook this as an aspect of our Christian lives. We focus on just the truth and being obedient and being upright and moral, and that's good. He mentions righteousness and truth. We should focus on those things. But there is an aspect to the Christian life where it is beautiful. It is excellent. It is pleasing. It's appropriate. Even if we just think back to some of the practical things Paul pointed out in chapter 4, we can see how he's already brought up this idea. So in chapter 4, verse 28, he talked about doing honest, literally good work. Again, that word can refer to quality work, excellent work, work that is pleasing to God and to your superiors. Or in 4.29, he said, don't have any corrupt speech, but have speech that is appropriate, it's fitting to the need. That is a sense of goodness, beauty. In chapter 5, verse 2, like we looked at last week, our lives are to be pleasing offerings to God. He looks at our lives and says, that's the kind of pleasing life I like to see in my children. Or in verses 3 and 4 that we saw last week, he talked about how our lives should be appropriate and fitting as saints, that we should live holy lives. You know, several times in the Old Testament, it talks about living in the beauty of holiness. Holiness, true holiness, is a beautiful thing. So I could, I could go on and on about this, like I said. I, I studied this actually a lot in my final year of seminary. So I could do a whole sermon series on this. But that's not the point of today's passage. But we do need to consider that. Are our lives as Christians beautiful? Are they attractive to the world in some way? Are they pleasing and fitting? Well, then Paul mentions righteousness. What is righteousness? Specifically, this righteousness, this idea, is being in a right relationship with someone because you live according to a certain standard that's been set. So if we think about being righteous according to the laws of our state, that means we have a right relationship with our state's authorities because we obey the laws that they've put in place. Or you could say that if you're married, you are righteous in your marriage because you are faithful to the vows that you took on your wedding day, that standard that was set. When it comes to our righteousness before God, 
What's his standard? Perfection. Sinlessness. Nothing wrong. No sin. Oh boy, we're in trouble, right? Because all of us sin. None of us are perfect. But Christ, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came down and he lived that sinless, perfect, righteous life in our place. So that when we trust in him, his righteousness gets put on us. And he takes our sin on himself and he bore it on the cross. And so now if we trust in him, God looks at us and says, I don't see any more sin. I see the perfect righteousness of my son on you. And so once again, we need to live out that truth. Christ has proclaimed us to have a righteous status before God. And now we need to live like it. We need to live righteous lives. And that means living according to the standard, the laws that God has set that we find in his word. The rules, the, the way of living that God has given us in the Bible. That is righteous living. And that leads us to this final aspect, truth. A life of light is characterized by goodness, righteousness, and truth. You know, if you think about these first two things we talked about, goodness, beauty, that can be very subjective a lot of times, right? Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, the saying goes. In other words, you can... My PowerPoint just went out again. Okay. In other words, when whoever decides something is beautiful, then that's beautiful for them, and that's all that matters. No, there are objective standards of beauty. God himself is the premier, supreme standard of beauty. And yes, sometimes we have trouble figuring these things out, but there is truth that grounds us in our morals. We can't just say, well, you can do what's right for you, and I'll do what's right for me, and you do what's right for you. If you want to live that way, that's fine. That's your morals. No, there are true objective standards for our righteousness. So our lives have to be grounded in the truth of the Bible, the objective truth that God has revealed to us in his word. So that's how we live as children of light. If we are living this way, that's what it's going to look like. We will live lives of truth and honesty, where we speak the truth in love, we ground our morals, our righteousness in the word of God, we live according to the Bible, and we live lives that are pleasing to God, that are appropriate for the way God has told us to live, and that will be beautiful. That is a sense of beauty. And it's really interesting when you put these three together, truth, virtue, beauty, if you've ever studied philosophy, these things are called the three transcendentals. It goes all the way back to Plato several hundred years before Christ. So it's really interesting that even though guys like Plato and Aristotle were not saved, they were people of darkness, like Paul mentioned. Paul actually is borrowing this idea, in a sense, that we need to live lives of truth goodness, virtue, beauty, 
And Plato and Aristotle, they said, yeah, that's how we need to strive to live. And Paul's saying, yeah, these guys in their darkness, they somehow stumbled across this truth. We need to live this way, not just because Plato and Aristotle taught it, but we need to live this way because Jesus transforms us to live this way. Because the light of Christ will shine in your life and it will look like this. Beauty and truth and virtue, righteousness. But what happens when we try to live this way and we run into those situations like we do every day where it doesn't say in the Bible what I should do in this situation? I don't know how to handle this. Well, that's the second thing that Paul moves on to. He says in verse 10, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. So we must live a life of discernment. We put things to the test to determine what would please God in this situation. You know, a lot of things in our life are not revealed in the Bible. What's the name of the person I should marry? What set of clothes should I wear today? What should we eat for dinner tonight? You can't open your Bible and it'll say you should have spaghetti tonight for dinner. You're not going to find it. I'm sorry. So what do we do? And these are, you know, mostly small examples. Marriage is a big one. But what do you do when you run into those things where you're like, I want to please God in my life in this decision. How do you test it? to figure that out. Well, you can use those principles that we just learned from verse 9. What decision will result in a life of beauty and righteousness and truth? What principles of truth from the Bible apply to this situation? Now, we could really get into the weeds on this again. There's so much discussion about this, and it's even going to come up again in this next passage that we're going to look at in a couple weeks. But let me just give you three pieces of advice, and I'm sorry, Colleen, but I'm going to recommend three books. I know you told me to stop because you keep buying them, but I can't help myself. <laughs> I like books, too. So let me just give you three pieces of advice for how to do this. How do you test things to see what pleases the Lord when you run into those situations in life where it's, it's not clear what God wants you to do? First off, it has to begin with cultivating a heart that desires to please God in everything. Okay? If you don't care what God thinks, you're not going to do this, right? <laughs> but if you want to please him then you will start testing things in your life. And the, the basic way to tell you to do that is to just fill yourself with biblical truth. This is our guidebook for how we live and please God. If we're living apart from what he's told us in the word, we're not pleasing him. We take these principles and we run our situations, our decisions in life through the grid of biblical truth and out comes a wise decision that pleases the Lord. That's what we have to do. And then take those biblical truths, those biblical principles, start testing things in your life. 
So let's just do an example really quick. Something um, that I mentioned. Who should I marry? Okay. The Bible does not say go to such and such place and you will meet a person named so and so and that is the person that you should marry. It doesn't say that. Well, we know according to God's word that marriage should be between one man and one woman. That's how God created marriage. So whatever you're thinking for marriage cannot violate that principle. We also know that God says believers should only marry other believers. So that's another principle that you would have to run this decision through. So it's, you would think through those kinds of truths and apply it. And you meet someone, oh, they're not a believer, not a candidate for marriage. Oh, this person is the opposite gender. They love the Lord. We are headed the same direction in life. Hey, sounds like a good match. Okay? So that's just an example. Now let me give you three resources on things that can help you with this. First is a book called Just Do Something by Kevin DeYoung. It's very short, but very practical and very good. The book's about how to make decisions when you don't know exactly what God's will is. Just listen to the subtitle. I love this. A liberating approach to finding God's will or... How to make a decision without dreams, visions, fleeces, impressions, open doors, random Bible verses, casting lots, liver shivers, writing in the sky, etc. Don't you love that? We don't need all these things to make decisions. It's very good. I highly recommend it. Honestly, we'll probably do a Sunday school on it at some point. We'll probably also do a Sunday school on this book, Conscience, by Andrew Nacelli and J.D. Crowley. Fantastic book. Conscience, what is it, how to train it, and loving those who differ. Very good. It takes these issues that are kind of gray areas where it is legitimate to have different opinions. Paul brings this up with things like what food should we eat? Some people back then, they said we can't eat meat. We can only eat vegetables. And Paul says that's just a matter of conscience. So how do we make sure our conscience aligns with the Bible and how do we love those who have different opinions than us? That's so important for unity in the church. And then finally, a book called All That's Good, Recovering the Lost Art of Discernment by Hannah Anderson. And I'll just put a little footnote for this one. I actually have not read this yet. I have it, but I haven't read it, but it comes highly, highly recommended. So... That is one that I would feel safe recommending because of people who have recommended it to me. So if you want more detail on those things, those books are going to be good resources for you. Also, I'm supposed to help you with those things too. So don't be afraid to ask me about those things. As your pastor, I want to help you learn the Bible, test things in your life with the Bible, and live pleasing to the Lord. So we shouldn't partner with darkness. We should not head down that path to death with unbelievers. But we should live as children of light. Lives that are characterized by goodness and righteousness and truth that pleases the Lord. But what do we do about those works of darkness or the people still in darkness? 
Well, to go back to our bus illustration, like Diana said, we, we should try to get them off the bus, rescue them from that path of destruction. And so Paul goes on to say, don't partner with or participate in darkness, but live as children of light and expose darkness. That's what he tells us in verses 11 to 14. So let's read those. He says, don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Everything exposed by the light is made visible. For what makes everything visible is light. Therefore it is said, get up, sleeper, and rise up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So first again, we have negatively Don't participate in works of darkness. And he's making a clear contrast here. He mentioned in verse 9 that there was the fruit of the light. What does the light produce? What is the fruit of that light? Well, here in verse 11, he says that these works of darkness are fruitless. They don't produce what we want. Now, this doesn't mean that they never produce anything. There are Plenty of works of darkness that will produce money or fame or popularity or whatever. He's talking about these works of darkness do not produce truth and righteousness and goodness that pleases the Lord. And we must remember, like we've already seen, not everything that an unbeliever does is a work of darkness. Okay? Unbelievers can produce beautiful music. That is beauty. Unbelievers can do righteous things like being a firefighter that rescues people's lives. Unbelievers can teach or discover truth like in medicine. That doesn't mean they're doing it for the glory of God, but that doesn't mean that it's a work of darkness that we need to reject either. Otherwise, we honestly wouldn't be able to live in this world just wouldn't work. So instead of participating in these works of darkness, what should we do? These works that produce corruption, falsehood, unrighteousness, we should expose them. That's what Paul says next. We expose works of darkness. Now that might sound really weird. What is Paul talking about here? Let me try my best to explain it. That word for expose is literally the word for rebuke, or as the King James has it, reprove. It means to convict someone, to show them that they are guilty. I like the way one dictionary defined it, to say that someone did something wrong with the assumption that there is sufficient evidence to prove the charge. So you can't just walk up to someone randomly and be like, you look like a thief. I think you stole something. No, you got to have evidence behind it, okay? So whose dark deeds are we exposing or are we rebuking? That's actually the, the hardest part about this passage. Are we doing this to ourselves? You know, sin that's still in us, we should expose it and get rid of it. Are we doing it to other people in the church, sort of the process of church discipline? Or are we doing this to unbelievers? Well, that's debated, but I believe that Paul is primarily talking about 
evangelism, reaching out to the lost who are still darkness and showing them the light, showing them the truth so that they trust in Christ and become light as well. Why would I say that? Well, the context is talking about how we relate to lost people. How do we have a God-honoring relationship with people who are not Christians, with people who are unsaved? And like I mentioned, when Paul talks about this darkness in his writings, except for one verse, he always uses it to refer to unbelievers or to their lost condition. So I think he's still doing that here. And then verse 14, that quote that he quotes to support what he's saying is basically a rehearsal of what he said in verse 8. Get up, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Okay, a person rising from the dead, that's a lost person getting saved. That's not just us dealing with our own sin. We should do that. But when we do that, we're not rising from the dead. That happens when someone gets saved. And that's the transformation that Paul was talking about in verse 8 when he said, For once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So the light of Christ, the light of the gospel, does not just expose sin, but it also transforms us from darkness into light. That's what Paul wants us to do. And how does this work? He says in verse 12, for it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Now what does that mean? If it's shameful even to mention these things, why are we going to go around and drag them out in broad daylight and make them known? You know, you think back to last week, if you were here, and we were talking about these different types of sexual sin, and yeah, that's kind of awkward to talk about in public. Well, what Paul's saying here is that when you talk to someone who's unsaved, and you point out, yeah, that, that thing in your life that you're doing, God's word says it's a sin. That should make them ashamed. It should convict them. Sadly, that does not happen all the time. It should, but it doesn't. Paul says in Romans 1.32 that for some people, although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Some people's hearts get so hardened in their sin that exposing them to the truth of God's word showing them that what they're doing is sinful. It just bounces off, and they look at sin, and instead of being ashamed of it, they actually celebrate it. So not everyone will respond this way, but that doesn't mean that we can neglect this. This is a part of our evangelism. People have to see their sin before they will see their need for a Savior. People have to understand that they are lost before they will want to get saved. They need to understand that they are guilty before they will understand that they need to be forgiven. So when we seek to share the gospel with someone, we do have to include this, that 
yeah, you are a sinner. You are under the wrath of God. You are guilty. You need a savior. Now the question is, how do we do that? Well, let me just point out first that even though people's hearts are hard, even though they are in the darkness, and even though this is not easy to do a lot of times, ultimately it does not depend on how good we do it. Okay? It depends on the Holy Spirit working in that person's heart, convicting them of their sin, shining the light of Christ into their darkness, and saving them. But how should we do this? How should we do this? Well, let's think about some of the principles that we've talked about in this passage and that we've also seen in chapter 5 that I've pointed out. Last week, we saw that we should walk or live in love. Love should characterize everything that we do as Christians. Even when we are pointing out someone's sin to them, showing them that they are guilty, we do that lovingly. And like we saw today, we must do it alongside a lifestyle that is characterized by truth and righteousness and goodness. If you're pointing out someone's sin, but you yourself are not living a righteous lifestyle, that's hypocrisy. And they're not going to listen to you. Right? We have to have a godly lifestyle accompanying these things. And then, like we read in verse 15, we're not going to look at this much, but we'll, it's the next passage we're going to deal with in Ephesians. He says, Pay careful attention then to how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise. So wisdom should also characterize our lives as Christians, including our evangelism. Some people have this idea that, well, it doesn't matter how you present the gospel. You just give it to people and they'll get saved. No, God uses human instruments, you and me, to present the gospel in specific times and places. And there are certain ways that are more effective than others. And so we need to think through wisely what is the best, the most effective way to spread the gospel in my context, where I am located. So that means we need to lovingly, wisely handle our relationships with unbelievers. We need our lifestyle to align with the gospel that we are proclaiming. And even like we saw with the idea of beauty, our witness in some way should be attractive. If, if, if our witness is totally bare bones, just truth, we don't care about how we present it, we don't care about how we live or how we look or anything like that, and if our demeanor is just ugly and harsh and mean, that's not going to attract people to Christ. Why would I want a savior who's mean and ugly, you know? This doesn't mean we have to compromise to the world's standards. It's not what I'm talking about. Some people, no matter what you do, Christ is still going to be awful to them, and they're going to reject him. But we should also be, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, a, a savor, an aroma of life to people, where they, they hear the gospel and they 
wow, that, that seems nice. I want that. Those people are so loving, so kind. I want that in my life. It's attractive. So let's get a little more specific about what this might look like. There's, you know, there's lots of ideas about how to spread the gospel. It does not mean, living this way will not mean that when you talk to someone and the instant they bring up something that's wrong or something that you disagree with, you go, Psh, well, that's wrong. Let me, let me show you the truth. No, that's just going to immediately turn their ears off. They are not going to listen to you anymore. Okay? Think about my, my neighbor that I mentioned in the announcements this morning. The first time I talked to them and he said, you know, yeah, my, my side of the family is Catholic. My wife's side is LDS. If I had gone, well, that's dumb. Don't you know both of those are wrong? You need to read the Bible. He probably wouldn't have even talked to me anymore, right? That's not a good way to evangelize. It's also more than just giving someone a tract and walking away. Now, God can use that. God does use that. But let's think about our context, the people that we are trying to reach. You just hand them a track. They know it's a gospel track. If they are irreligious, what are they going to do? They're going to throw it in the trash. If they are, already have another belief system, they might read it, and they're probably not going to understand anything it's saying because they've been taught wrong things, and they don't need a track to just say, repent and be saved. They need a friend to walk them through those things to teach them the truth patiently and lovingly. This also does not mean pressuring someone to make a decision before they understand what they're doing. That is so dangerous. So dangerous. So many people make false professions of faith because they did not understand what they were doing, but someone was telling them, you got to get saved right now. Pray the prayer. Don't do that. Please don't do that. That is dangerous. It's also more than just inviting people to church or church events. Now, again, that's good. It's not that we shouldn't do those things. But this type of evangelism goes beyond that, where you are personally investing in someone's life. So these things I mentioned, they're not necessarily wrong. Handing out tracts is not wrong. But what is the most loving, wise way to reach the people around us, the people that we want to see saved? Well, in our time, in our place, the things that I mentioned are not the best way to reach people. They might have worked in the past. You know, Billy Graham 50 years ago, big open-air tent revival meetings, Stuff like that might have worked 50 years ago. It does not work very good today. Or where I'm from, North Carolina, the Bible Belt of the U.S., people, when you talk about Jesus or the gospel, they pretty much know what you're talking about a lot of times. Tracks can be pretty effective there. They're not really effective here because people don't understand the terminology that they're using. So the best way like we've mentioned, is to build a genuine, loving 
friendship with that unbeliever and to wisely work in opportunities to share the gospel with them. That's what we've got to get really good at. That's what we've got to practice. Building those friendships with the lost. And then that friendship gives us an extended opportunity to show them a lifestyle that matches the gospel and to work in opportunities to share the gospel. And so again, I just want to promote to you this, this conference, November 18th, completely free, about 45 minutes away at Kaysville Bible Church. This is exactly what the Sego Lily Foundation exists to help you do. How do you build friendships with lost people? How do you share the gospel with them in a way that is loving and wise, a way that they will understand? And this conference, I'm, I'm excited for it because it's new material that they're putting out should be really, really good. And it's going to help us learn how to do exactly what we're talking about here. So when we're talking about exposing sin, remember, our goal is not just conviction. We don't want to just show people that they're wrong and they're sinful and they're guilty. Our goal is for them to get saved. We go from that conviction to the gospel. That's how Paul ends in verse 14, or 13 and 14. He says, Everything exposed by the light is made visible, for what makes everything visible is light. Therefore it is said, Get up, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now this section is a little bit odd. What is Paul saying here exactly? The first line is obvious enough. Everything exposed by the light is made visible. Okay, yeah, light shines on something, you can see it. Good. What does he mean by that next line? In our translation, the CSB, it says, For what makes everything visible is light. Some translations translate it that way. Other translations translate it as something like, Everything made visible is light or becomes light. And that's actually the better option grammatically. So I think the NIV does a really good job with this. It says, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. So again, the light of Christ doesn't just show us our sin, but it transforms us. When someone accepts the gospel, they are not just forgiven of their sin, but they are transformed into a child of light. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And then he mentions this quote at the end of verse 14, and we, we really have no idea where this quote comes from. Uh, there's no passage in the Old Testament that is like this. Most likely it came from uh, an early Christian hymn, a song that they that someone wrote in the first century, which is pretty cool that I think we have it preserved for us here. That's most likely what's going on, but regardless, what is he talking about here? Like we said, he's talking about someone being saved. They rise up from the dead. Christ shines on them. 
and they become light, just like Paul described our conversion in verse 8. So when we go out into our lost, dark, dying world, this is the good news that we want to get to. This is the good news that we want to bring into our relationships. When we lovingly and wisely expose people's sin, we don't want to stop there. We go on to the gospel, the good news. Yes, you are in the darkness of sin, but Christ will shine on you. He will remove your sin and guilt and transform you into light. He will give you true life from your spiritual deadness. Rise up, call on Christ, trust in him, and be saved. That is our responsibility to this dark and dying world. That should be our relationship with the lost, that we bring them to the light. So don't partner with or participate in darkness, but live as children of light and expose darkness. So are you a child of light this morning? Have you accepted Christ as your Savior and let him shine his light into your heart? Are you living as a child of light? Is your life characterized by goodness and righteousness and truth? And are you seeking to please the Lord in all things? And how's your relationship with the lost? Are you seeking to win them to Christ? Are you lovingly building relationships with them, wisely pointing out their sin so that you can share the gospel? That is how we must live as children of light. It's who we are, and it's how we should live. So let's pray and ask for God's help with this. Lord, we thank you that salvation truly is miraculous. For which of us, what power could possibly transform darkness into light. You can certainly shine a light and make darkness disappear, but to change darkness itself into light, what a glorious miracle. And thank you that you have done that in each of our hearts who knows you as Savior. Thank you that you have given us a beautiful identity in you, a new nature in you and you have given us guidance on how we should live as children of light guidance on how we should live as your beloved children so help us to live this way help us to be intentional about this that we would filter things in our life through the truth of your word and live lives of truth and beauty and righteousness that please you. Lord, help us to be intentional in our relationships with the lost, that we would seek to win them to Christ, that your light would shine in their darkened hearts and they would be saved. We ask this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.